City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, composer-lyricist Once again, to the 27th season of the American Theatre Wings Working in the Theatre Seminars. These are coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's discussion includes insights of the composers and lyricists as they bring their talents to the New York Theatre. We are so pleased to bring you this new seminar and hope you will enjoy and appreciate how these artists create the magic of the musical as you see it when you come to the theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Week, and I am so pleased to now introduce our moderator for this seminar, Oscar, Emmy, and five-time American Theatre Week Tony Award winner, the distinguished writer, Peter Stone. I could hardly speak, you just handed me I'm very, I, I should have a speech to go with my fifth Tony, which I haven't done yet. Maybe that, maybe that was it. I don't know. I mean, Isabel can't give it to you. Who can? That's what I She's the boss. This is a very distinguished panel of uh, composers and lyricists, and I'm not supposed to give credits or anything, but most of them are go so quickly. Now, they've managed to do something that has never happened in their professional life. They've split up Candor and M. Uh, but here they are. This is John Candor, the composer. This is Fred Ebb over here. We'll get to him in a minute. I'm supposed to go in order. And they, of course, have done Cabaret in Chicago, which are still running. Did they ever go off? They're still running. Today. I certainly hope not. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, between the original and now. And they've done everything. A Woman of the Year and, uh, and Steel Pier and um, God knows everything. So the act. Uh, we know uh, Susan, who is the wonderful lyricist who, who did uh, uh, Triumph of Love. And, and Jelly's Last Jam, and she has some really exciting projects coming up, mainly the adaptation of Moonstruck and uh, The Night They Raided Minsky's. And she's different in one sense, and that is that like Marvin, and unlike Fred and John, she has worked with several composers, from Julie Stein to, to uh, uh, Lucy Simon, and uh, now uh, Charles, Charles Strauss, and, and so forth. So that part we'll, we'll get into. Fred Ebb, is the partner of John Cantor. He's the lyricist, he's the composer. Same shows. <laughs> Had more Tonys between them than, than it would keep Isabel busy for. John, over here, Hamlish, everybody knows Marvin because Marvin is a multiple Oscar winner, a multiple Tony winner with uh, the pictures we know. We're talking about the stage today, uh, and that's Chorus Line, and, and they're playing our song. And new ones coming up, including. Um, uh, the su sweet smell of success. Now, the gentleman on my far left, I uh, just met today, and I'm going to spend a second longer on him because, to those of you who are very familiar with the theater, uh, Don Schlitz is a is a, is someone we may not know yet in the theater. I hope we will. I hope you're planning something. We'll find out that today. But this is the most influential and awarded country songwriter of the past 20 years. He's had 24 
top uh, uh, number ones on the on the list, a hundred in the top. Uh, I mean, in the you know, just endless amounts of <laughs> Grammys, and uh, he has been recorded by everybody in that field. And I'm going to be very interested. Uh, and he's also dropped things. Anyway, <laughs> we are going to be interested to hear about that because it's a it's a, it's a departure. Music and lyrics. Um, it, a seamless partnership is, uh, you know, we've got here people who have worked together a long time, people who work with different people, and finally we have Don who works with himself, uh, and uh, they'll, they'll clean that up when I do it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it's an interesting match to put those two things together. I remember the famous story that everybody up here knows about Mrs. Hammerstein and, and Mrs. Jerome Kern who were at some sort of reception. And, <coughs> Mrs. Uh, Jerome uh, Kern was introduced as the husband of the wife of, of uh, that her husband had written Old Man River, and Mrs. Hammerstein said, "No, her husband wrote da 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 da." My husband, uh, the lyricist, wrote Old Man River, and that's in fact the case. And what's interested me about how they work together? I once worked with with Richard Rogers, and I asked him, "Why are the songs you wrote with Larry Hart so different?" in sound and in, in spirit and in flavor from the songs you wrote with Oscar Hammerstein. And he said, well, it's one interesting case, because with Larry Hart, I wrote the melodies first, and he said his lyrics to them. But with Oscar, he wrote the lyrics first, and, uh, and uh, then I wrote the music to those. And as a result of that, the sound came out different, and, be, and, um, and the flavor and the tone. So I'm going to start here. I'm going to ask you all is sort of the same question, and that is, how do you work, and how do you prefer to work, and have you tried it both ways? That is to say, lyrics and music. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I clean it up I later, Peter. I didn't mean to fake <laughs> news today. That's I, second thing. <laughs> I, was just, I was just asking the question. Well, with, uh, Fred and I have uh, worked in the same way from the beginning of our collaboration. I don't really know how it came about. Exactly, but we have always worked primarily in the same room at the same time, improvising together. And uh, very, very rarely has Fred ever handed me a lyric uh, to set, and very rarely have I come in and said, here's a melodic idea I'd like you to work with. It just doesn't happen. It's and symbiotic. Very. And uh, it's... Uh, a way of working that's worked for us and gives us pleasure. I, I can't necessarily recommend it to anybody else, but it's it's our way. Susan? Gosh, it depends on, on the composer with whom I'm working. Um, some composers prefer to do music first, and there again, it depends on the moment. I think if it's a really a book-driven moment or a you should pardon the expression, a comedy song, um, it's lyric-driven, then it's generally better to start with the lyric. But um, when I worked with Julie Stein uh, in working with Charles Strauss, um, I find it very easy sometimes to just let them go ahead and write the music, and then I set the lyric to the music. With other people... Um, you don't find it limiting having the in a sense, the tempo, the, the, the prosody set out for you by the music? Not I mean, really, because, you know, if the composer is a dramatist, which Julie certainly was, and Charles certainly is, um, 
then somehow or other it's mostly right and then and then we collaborate you know I'll, I'll take the music and by and large set a lyric to it and at least get going with it and then we get into the room together and and iron it out Henry Krieger prefers to have the lyric first and that's a great luxury but again we get into the room together and we pull back and forth and twist and Henry Krieger wrote Dream Girls, among other things, yes. uh, and uh, is, a, is a fine composer. Freddie, you know, we've, you, John, you and I worked on two shows, and we had, uh, two scores have emerged, but I was never there during the process of writing the song. We would work out a scene and then plan where the song went, what it's about, and then I'd come back and the song was finished. And, well, at least a, a version of it was finished, which is how it develops. So I've never saw it happen, so I was interested to hear from John. Is it pretty much as he described it? uh -huh. Good. All right, now. <laughs> have you ever, uh, have you ever s set to his music? I think New York, New York, the song, Johnny got the uh, vamp first. And the general uh, outline of it first. At some point, we'll talk about vamps because he's one of the since. Mostly, though, it, it's as we described. Though sometimes we've stolen from you, which is. I understand. That's a book. That's a thing we'll, we'll talk about at some point about how much <laughs> comes from the actual scenes and the, and and how it goes on. Marvin, I know that you and you have sort of uh, at the moment uh, sort of formed an alliance with Craig Cornell. You're right. a marvelous uh, uh, right. lyricist, although you have worked uh, with uh, with Ed Klee Band, and, right. and you've worked uh, also. Uh, with Carol Sager and, and, and others. Um, have you worked both ways, that is to say, or do, is it in, one way? If I'm writing a song for the theater, then I much prefer, the process that I like uh, is that myself and the lyricist are together, we're looking at the scene, and we come up with a notion of what the song is going to be. And hopefully with it comes a title, a something to hang your hat on. And at that point, I prefer to write music first, only because I've found that when I try it the other way, it's not very successful. I just don't get into it. I, I find it amazing when you talked about, for instance, the way uh, Oscar Hammerstein and, and uh, Rogers wrote. I mean, I know for, for a fact that, Roger, uh, that Hammerstein brought in the entire lyrics of Oklahoma and said, here, do it. And I know I could never do that. I just, it's not within my ability to do that. Well, because you the know. songs have been written already. Well, that's true. Yeah. You know, Arizona, maybe, I could have done it. But, however, 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 where, where I would change that method would be if you were not writing for a theater. Uh, for instance, if you were writing, like, because you mentioned Carol Sager, and Carol Sager and I used to write a lot for the charts. If you're writing, quote, for, for not the theater, where you're trying to be very, very much part of the book, very much trying to tell a story and continue the story, uh, that's one thing. If you're trying to write, quote, a hook song, a song that's got the hook, sometimes lyrics first is a very, very good idea. So, you know, it's, that's a, I, I, I would say, listen, it has to work for you as a writer. It has to be whatever way you prefer to write. For me, I like to write first with some sort of an idea of what the song is about and then, st and then start. You when know? you do the theme of a film, like the way they were, is that, that's more like a song for the charts or is that more in the... The way we were was a real hybrid because, uh, you know, it's very interesting. The, what you always hear from the director and the producer of a film is, I want this piece of music to be absolutely correct. I want it to be right for the film, and I want it to, to absolutely stay in context with the film. 
What you're hearing from the record company and the, and the, and the studio is, if this isn't a hit, your name is Mud. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you're listening to both sides at the same time. You've got to be true to the film always. And, uh, but again, we were very lucky. I mean, here, the way we were, for instance, is a good example. That title came with the film. So, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, you're starting off with something very, very strong. Don, now when, uh, when you sit down with yourself, <laughs> are you, are, which do you, you, you work at it? At an instrument, particularly, are you piano or guitar? I write on guitar, guitar, uh, and and seated with a uh, with a legal pad in front of me or a computer, and uh, do both at the same time. But in reading uh, Hammerstein's uh, essays, he said he would always work with a working melody in his head, and I tend to start with the lyrics, but with a working melody going uh, the whole time. Now, for years and years, I've written with other songwriters in Nashville, uh, virtually always who were also composers and lyricists, and we would uh, play off of each other uh, both ways. But when, in writing for the theater, I've been uh, working by myself, and uh, it is, uh, I, I tend to start with the, the source, what's supposed to happen there, um, go for the, uh, the conversational lyric idea, uh, but work with a with a working melody, and uh, upon completion of that draft, you go back, and I go back <laughs> by myself and write a new melody. At which point the words aren't good enough, so I have to call the lyricist in to go back and fix the words. And uh, tell us, just because boy. we're less familiar with with your background, where are you from and where do you live? I'm uh, originally from Durham, North Carolina, but when I was 20 years old, I uh, did the uh, I bravely dropped out of my third freshman semester of Duke University <laughs> and uh, had, took my $80 and went to Nashville. And I've lived in Nashville since 1973. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate to have, uh, my, after a brief four and a half year stay there, my first uh, song was recorded was a song called The Gambler that Kenny Rogers mm -hmm. cut. And later I had a, a, a lot of success with Randy Travis, Mary Chapin Carpenter, uh, Allison Krauss, the Judds, and uh, a lot of people who are household names, while I, thank God, have not become one. Uh, and uh, I was, I came to a seminar in Nashville that some, some great theater people, uh, Mike Ockrent, Michael David, Mari Yeston, Freddie Gershon, uh, came down and did in a to basically uh, recruit people to write for the theater. And Mike Ockrent gathered some of us up and said, let's go off and let me teach you about this. Well, that's my, that was really my next question to you. And just, so I interrupted you uh, even before no, you spoke. No, 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 which is really, <laughs> not, that's right. That's tough to do <laughs> to a book writer. Yeah, <laughs> it, not, not when you're with composers and lyricists. It? No, but the, the fact is that, uh, so you are interested in the theater. We've the, not really had a great uh, country, or what, what do you consider as a country? A country Western song, country song. Yeah, we call it country song. I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm a country, right. ba my basis is country songwriter, but I've been studying theater for 10 years. I'm married to a, a, a wonderful actress, dramaturge, and uh, so I, I'm surrounded uh, by, by the theater. theater and have been for years and years yeah. and have, have fallen in with good folk. 
Well, the song, the gambler. I mean, there are stories. I mean, a lot of your songs are stories in themselves. I yes, mean, they more are. so than than you know. Most <coughs> theater songs are part of a story. You have only that vehicle to tell the whole story. With. Well, like the chronology the is different. The gambler you, you is do, a story. You know, instead of working under a uh, time frame of three and a half minutes, to uh, when, in which case there are often births, deaths, and everything that goes on in between that three and a half minutes. It's the you you you're stretched out to two hours and fifteen minutes, or um, an hour and forty-five minutes after they cut all the bad songs. Uh, so, so it's uh, it's you have to take every little aspect, and you also get to expand on different characters, and not just uh, instead of in the song saying this happened and this happened and this happened. The the dramatist is doing that. The book writer is is making all that happen. The source material, he's taking that or she's taking that and and making it happen. And it's my job to, or our, uh, our jobs to uh, express uh, the moments and to take the moments and at the same time to move the story forward. Uh, writing for country music has been uh, a, a a great uh, a great uh, learning ground for me because the the point of a country song is to write conversationally. Uh, that it could be something that someone will say to someone else. And so the transition to the theater uh, was, was fairly easy. All I had to do was stop writing about stuff that happened to me in high school and start writing from source material. <laughs> Some of those songs are almost could be ex expanded into a full show. Like I, I think of the Ode to Billy Joe. What, it, what was it? What Great was it song. You see, Ode to Billy Joe. That's right. an entire play in that song. Yeah. Absolutely. It's quite wonderful, really, mm -hmm. because it's, it's got surprise. It has a first, second, and third act. It has characters. It's really quite a, quite a wonderful yeah. thing. Peter, yes. can I ask a quick question? What made Nashville the heart of country music, such as Broadway is the heart of the theater? The, uh, that there was, mm, I would believe that, that is, is, was where the, the records were originally made. Uh, they, they could have been, a lot of it was happening in East Tennessee. Uh, if you take what uh, country music has amalgamated on its way to becoming what we think of as, as this huge business, it's taken over bluegrass, it's taken over folk music is not taken, it's amalgamated bluegrass, it's amalgamated folk music, it's amalgamated blues, it's uh, also along the way taken on uh, rock and roll, heavy metal, you name it. Uh, along the way it becomes this uh, huge mass of, of material called country music which is, um, Nashville was a central area. Was it central first or did Grand Ole Opry, which was first? Uh, Grand Ole Opry had a lot to do with it. Uh, the the uh, the Bradley family mm -hmm. had a lot to do with it. The uh, the Carter family had a great deal to do with where they were uh, and where they uh, first decided to to build those first studios. And it was like the reason that I went to Nashville. I had eighty dollars, uh, and I couldn't afford to go to New York or Los Angeles. Uh, so that's. I think how it happened. Before we get into general conversation, which I know they prefer, we do here. I want to uh, let's catch up on some of the other uh, on the backstories. How did you two get together? We were both signed to a publisher named Tommy Volando separately, and uh, this is a really simple story. Tommy said, "I think you two guys should meet each other. I think you'd like each other," and so we did, and we did, and we wrote. He was a genius, and, uh, and that was. But you're from Kansas City. Definitely. And you're from uh, New York City. Uh-huh. It's not much <laughs> different. <laughs> it's, you know, 
It's uh, and that was how they just Tommy just put you two together. He uh, somehow or other sensed that uh, our different strengths and different weaknesses would probably uh, coalesce into one good writer. What preparation had you as a as a musician? What did you what had you gone through before that happened? What sort of training and education? Well, I've been playing the piano since I was about four, and. Uh, I studied while I was going to high school, and then I went to Oberlin. This is this sort of stuff. Yeah. I went to Oberlin <laughs> and graduated from there and then got a master's at Columbia. But I was always writing. I've been writing since I was a little kid. And what brought theater to the fore rather than, say, writing songs or write, I mean, just individual songs or writing uh, uh, classically or, or whatever? Partly, I guess, because I fell in love with the theater from the time I was a little kid. And I fell in love with opera. Uh, the idea, listening to those Saturday broadcasts, somehow or other implanted the idea that music telling a story was about the most exciting thing that uh, you could be involved with. And I've been stuck with it ever since. Well, fortunately. What? And Susan? Uh, you're from where? New York. And you born came, and bred. And you became a lyricist how? Uh, in a very strange way. I wanted to be an actress and singer. Um, I, from the moment I set foot on a stage, I just said, so this is who I am. And, and loved the theater more than anything. Um, but the audition process was too frightening, so I stopped. And, uh, I married the first time um, when I was very, very young. I was still in school. And so I just retreated into being a, a mommy, a wife and a mother, and had four children and wrote, always wrote just for fun. And What, what did you write? Um, well, I would write little things for children to do. I mean, I, I was a school teacher for two minutes, and I wrote... <laughs> and I taught a class of, of educable, retarded children, as they were called at that time. And, and I wrote a version of Snow White for them, book, music, and lyrics. And um, didn't think much of it. And my ex-husband was uh, running a summer theater in, in Hyannis. And somebody came up to me and said, you're a musician, can you write a score for Rumpelstiltskin by Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... Why not? So I went to the beach with the kids, and I did. And a hard rhyme. Must have been the first challenge, actually. But I'll cut this really short. I just somebody uh, was on a plane and sitting next to a producer who asked for a tape of this, and all of a sudden I got a letter in the mail, and so there it you, was. Here you are. Here I am. Did you write on a person on a panel? I never did. Never did. Never did. Never wrote Rumblefieldsman. I did write it. I never rhymed it. Oh, never rhymed it. Well, no, it came at the end of the phrase. I love somebody's. You know, there are certain words that are never ever rhymable. And someone said to somebody who was not in the business, there are certain words. He said, like what? And he said, well, orange. He said, that's one of those words. And the guy said, that that's no problem. I can rhyme orange, orange, porange, lorange, corange. What said to you, you're a lyricist? When and at what point in your life? I don't know. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you couldn't study it in school, or I would have. 
I love theater. I used to go and see everything, and uh, I knew every song from every show. And uh, it's what I wanted, uh, except I knew I didn't have any composing skill. So I went out with a girl. Her name was Patsy Vamus. And I said, I'd like to be a lyric writer, but I don't know a composer. She said, I do. <laughs> I'm dating one. His name is Phil Springer, and uh, I can arrange for you to meet him. And so I, I'll, this is the Reader's Digest version. I went over and I met Phil, and he played me a song with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And I thought, this is great. And he said, nobody can, uh, has ever been able to set this uh, particular melody. And I thought, oh God, please help me set it. <laughs> and he had written with Dick Adler right. and uh, a Adler woman. Adler wrote Pajama Game and Dan yeah. Yankees, right. And a woman named Joan Javits, who was very clever and wrote Santa Baby, a song I loved. And uh, I sat behind that guy and he played it over and over and over and I wrote my head off. And I said, oh God, please let him like it. And I put it up in front of him, and he, boom, boom, and he played it, and he said, you're good. And that was? Yeah. What was and, the name of the song for you? Uh, I Never Loved Him Anyhow. <laughs> good time. I love Freddie's time. <laughs> I love, love Freddie's time. <laughs> <laughs> and the last line was, well, anyhow, not much. <laughs> oh, and uh, I, I thought it was okay. I mean, I didn't know. Uh, the fact that he approved of me, and he was a professional. How, uh, old, how old were you? Oh, maybe 23, 24. Maybe. I was already well on my way to being nobody, and uh, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted or how I would do it. I just knew I loved it. And I just figured somebody walked in the room that night and said, do it. And I did it, and he approved of me, and I met him every day of my life, from 10 <coughs> to 6 at night. And we wrote pop songs. And uh, the first year we made $80. <laughs> and I was working as a credit authorizer for Ludwig Bauman. And uh, I bronze baby shoes, <laughs> and uh, I did everything in the world. And uh, I was writing, and I was happy. And uh, that's how it started. And then he left me, and he got a paying job somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually I met Tommy, John. Tommy put you together yeah. with John. Mm -hmm. And well, that changed my whole life. And so, but, and... It's interesting that you that that more lyricists say that they don't know how to compose than composers do who say they can write lyrics. Yeah. Well, but, he can. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Well, I'm, no, he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie's got rhythm. Yeah, he <laughs> does. Marvin, you started out, I know, as a musician. As a as a, you were probably about nine months old. What what? Yeah. I was. Uh, it was interesting. I was uh, at the Juilliard School of Music, starting out at the age of six and a half and uh, going to school at PS9, but doing exactly what you said before, which was going to shows and just loving them. But I remember in those days, what was wonderful was, 
you could stand, you had standing room for a dollar to a quarter. Or 75 cents. 75 cents. I mean, it was, it was the kind of thing you could do, and you could do, you know, beautifully. I mean, you know, My Fair Lady could open, and three days later you could be standing and seeing it. Boom, you know. Uh, and I remember, in the, I remember particularly in the fifth grade, I had done something pretty well in the fifth grade, and they gave me the LP of uh, My Fair Lady. You know, that, that was my prize. So I fell in love with this stuff, and I also, just parenthetically, just saying about today, the difference is that when I was going to school, Something would open up on Broadway, right? You'd read the, the New York Times or whatever, the, or in those days, the seven papers, you'd find out what was happening. But on Sunday night, you'd have Ed Sullivan show, who would immediately bring on Enzio Pinza, who would now sing Some Enchanted Evening. And you, sitting at home, if you hadn't, you know, you didn't need an ad like they need now, you know, a television ad. You just saw that on that show, right? And you went, wow, I gotta see this show, I gotta, you know. So I fell in love with that whole thing. What happened to me was that I always felt at the age of 16 I could have done it. I, I really felt that way. But no one was saying, here's a million dollars, kid, write a show. So I had to do a kind of a different route to get to where I always wanted to get to, which was Broadway, which was I literally you know, went from one thing to another and finally landed a, 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 a movie because I was at the party of a, a certain uh, producer and one thing led to another. So I was out there in Hollywood and having, you know, having a wonderful career basically, but in my heart saying, this is not exactly what I like to be doing. So it was very exciting to then finally be able to do a Broadway show because, but, but, but the, my father used to say about New York City, he used to say, because he's from Vienna, he used to say that New York is a disease, and once you caught the disease, you were hooked. I think it's very true about Broadway, and that's why it's so thrilling to have someone like, like this fellow over here who is from Nashville, comes from that country world, and, and is now hooked. Because it, you know, it's, it's something that you have to really love to do it. Because to write a show, everyone thinks is the easiest thing in the world. Then to put it on, you think, oh, that's a piece of cake. And then when you have a hit, wow. For all of those moments, there are those other moments where the show never happens, the show is a bomb, all those other things that you live with that you don't put in your bio. Because your bio only tells you the good stuff. I and mean, I love, the easiest way to get out of funk is read your bio. Because if you read your bio, you only read the good stuff. You know, it's well, wonderful. You brought up something that I think we're going to be talking about. But you left something out, and you left it out, and I think it's important for both of you. You were both rehearsal pianists. Yes, right. Both yep. of you. And, I, and both yes, I still be, am. I, think. I know, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you, made, you were a rehearsal pianist. No, but, but I'm, I'm, that was not a joke. In my head, I am still a rehearsal right. pianist, and it's, uh, and it's, when rehearsal starts, it's very hard to get but the, the keyboard are, off my fingers. You were a rehearsal pianist at some wonderful show. Oh. And so were you. I mean, you were Julie, and Julie. you were... And uh, <coughs> what are some of the shows you were there for? Well, uh, fly on the Wall, really. Uh, well, I wrote, I rehearsed and did the dance music for Gypsy right. and uh, for Irma LaDuce. And those were probably the, the best learning experiences I right. could possibly yeah. have had. Yeah. Because right. there you are, you're hearing and seeing right. everything. Well, you know, the, the, the show that I did particularly was uh, Funny Girl. And what I remember about Funny Girl was it was basically a not a hit out of town. We were in a lot of trouble. And watching people, you know, right. that's the thing that you learn. It, it's watching how you solve it and, and if it can be solved also, you know what I mean? And, uh, but, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, he's being very modest because his work is legendary when it comes to uh, the dance music that he wrote. I mean, it's just absolutely thrilling. I mean, you listen to Gypsy, it's, and to, to be that good to make it sound like the composer wrote it, that's the beauty of it. That's the killer, you know?
Thank you. But one of the things that you said is, abs is absolutely right, and particularly from our point of view right. as rehearsal panelists, because you're not there at the meetings when all these momentous decisions are made. So uh, you have a disaster on Thursday night and on Friday at rehearsal. A whole other uh, trunk full of work comes your way, and you have no idea how, how they arrived at those right. decisions. But it's interesting because you worked with Julie Stein. You worked with Julie Stein. I worked with Julie Stein. Okay. So did Soder Marmot. There are certain people I know that, who are really influential. And Broadway is one of those things, especially musical theater. People say, right from Chicago or from Minneapolis or from or Seattle and say, well, I'm, I'm doing musical theater. It's very hard to do musical theater without coming to New York. It's one of those few things that you learn by observing and doing. And there are certain people who are really, I mean, Frank Lesser was, from, you know, told everything about the business. He, he knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I get a feeling that the new people coming along aren't well grounded in the old musical theater. Well, it's much, much harder. I mean, we, we really were spoiled mm -hmm. uh, because there were lots and lots of productions. You could, if a, if a show closed, you could get a job going to something else. To, uh, for co new composers today, it's murder. I want to ask Don that if theater came into your life there. I mean, while you were in Nashville, I mean, sure. it came into your head from listening, from hearing. Did you come to New York? No, well, I, I, I still, still live in Nashville. But when Mike Ockrent uh, introduced me to Ken Ludwig, who right. is uh, the wonderful playwright who had written the book for Crazy for You, had written Lend Me a Tenor, Moon Over Buffalo, and uh, he said, "Well, go see my friend Ken in Washington." Uh, I called Ken. He'd never, I think, heard a country song in his life. But I a lawyer him, uh, by, by trade. Uh, he, uh, I, I refer to him as a former law student because he doesn't like mm -hmm. to be called a lawyer anymore. <laughs> 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 he, uh, he said, we'll never find anything to write about. Uh, and, but come up and, and we'll, we'll talk. So I'll go up, have a dinner. He assures me we'll never find anything to write about. Next morning, 20 minutes into meetings, uh, to sitting and talking, we're talking about Mark Twain and uh, having studied uh, what has worked and hasn't worked. Uh, he says, uh, well, you know, there's Tom Sawyer, and I said, it's never been a hit. And he comes like this far out of his seat and says, that's it. And so I've had a, like a, a four and a half year intense one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, personal class from Ken Ludwig on how to write uh, for, for the theater. And he sent me directly to My Fair Lady, directly to, to Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, directly to the people who are also here today who must be just shaking their boots to be sitting here with such a big country songwriter. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and had me study and study and study. And, and my wife as well, who was an actress, who, and that was a musical theater, was her first love. And, and Polly pushed me and, uh, and showed me what to, what to study. But it was uh, it's a great learning experience. But yeah, you've got to be present to win. One of the things, just to interject something here, uh, I've been listening over last weekend to a collection of CDs of sort of the history of Broadway. And in 1917, Jerome Kern opened four musicals on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And in 1918, he opened two more. And what's weird about that is that that wasn't even unusual. And what has uh, developed in the theater uh, to this point is that now for, for all of us uh, from the time of starting to write a musical till the time it's produced uh, is years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's true. I, I think that the, the great four or five, including Gershwin uh, and Cole Porter and uh, 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 Rogers, and I think they saw themselves basically at that time songwriters. Irving Berlin, they were songwriters. That's you know they weren't, and and the books were so uh, simple, really very simple. They were just glue to put and the songs together. And it wasn't until Oscar really invented the modern book, which he did, uh, that, uh, that, that changed. It also made it harder to get a show on because they were a play now and there were characters and that meant, you know, I, I, I have no doubt that those shows then went out of town or didn't go out of town. There was no trouble. The songs were great. They may have cut one that the audience didn't like and put another one in. Well, we're going to get to out of town in a minute. So, however, uh, but, uh, but I, as, as just a, as writing for the in the country genre, the popular genre, would normally write 120, 140 songs a year, uh, which translates if you group them all together uh, into into quite a few shows. Uh, there was it was not a real extraordinary uh, effort uh, work-wise for me. It just meant getting up and going in and working for four or five hours every day, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is fine. And I got weekends off, so that was the plus. Mm -hmm. But, old, but old. once you get to the book, the, you know, yeah. I'm, and, you know it's, it's always the book writer that slows you down. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> because they insist on you know, having something to do with the story, which is, is uh, you know. I was interested in, in, in all of the obituaries for Steve Allen, that the man wrote 5,000 songs, you know, yeah. and I, which, I'm, which I've no doubt that he did, and some of them we know and are quite good, but, but it wasn't, it, it would have been 11 songs if he'd written for the theater. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's that's the way, yes. When you write a book for a play, what directions do you give to your composer or lyricist? Well, you don't, one thing, you don't direct them, and that, that, that's the first thing. Uh, there are several ways, and I'll make this, keep this very short, because it's about music lyrics, although they're, they're wed in such a way now. Um, you, you, it's a collaboration, and the collaboration is, is very much like a marriage. You really do bond, and you, 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 during that time, you live together, and you go through all of the things uh, that you would go in making a relationship work. And one of those things is to is to share. You argue. You do. But <coughs> but there are two or th there are three ways to do a book uh, with a show. And one is to write the book and turn it over, just like it is with a song and lyrics, whatever. Turn over the thing, which is not a very good way. I've done it. And it, the other is to have a full score and sit down and try to put a book to it, which I've also done. It worked out all right in one case, but but it, it's hard. But the way that John and Fred and I have worked, and the way I've worked. Sort of the first time I did it was with them on, on, on Woman of the Year. And subsequently, I've insisted on every show I've done, is that you work simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And you sit yes. down and you plot it out. I know that today people don't like outlining and having uh, that because it's, it's hard. And they'd, they'd rather get to the, to the fun part. Outline it scene by scene, and then every scene, where's the, what's it about? What's the song? What's the song about? And where does it go? And then you go off by yourselves and do your work, and you come back together. Well, right. that, that way you can tell what kind of song you need to write where, too. You've got the arc of the show, and you know that you don't want to put four ballads back to back, and, and you need to know where the tension is. And unless you were working uh, closely with the, uh, the book writer, the, the, com the composer and lyricist doesn't know where to go. Although it's, it's also it's so that yeah, it just solves the other problem that we mentioned, which is that book writers are very sensitive to writing a scene and then having it taken to make a song, <laughs> uh, they, they, including the thought and the whole idea. Because usually the song is the 
meat part of the scene. I mean, it's the emotional part. But Frank Leslie said, how do you, I went to him my first show, I said, how do you know where a song goes? And he said, when they can't speak anymore, they have to use interjections. Oh, ah, e. That's why so many good theater songs begin with, you know, oh, what a beautiful morning. It, it, it's because they, it, you, you brought, you moved, you moved to, you moved to uh, the poetry. But that's usually the best part. So if the author doesn't have to, if the book writer doesn't have to write that in the first place, he doesn't mind losing it. So you say, where's the moment? That's the moment. All right, take care of it, and I won't do it. That's not to say it doesn't come up in other places, but that's the best way of handling it. But why do you choose John instead of Marvin to write your music? Well, I, it, you don't make that choice it, that way. You end up, it's like, it's like John and Fred ended up together. It's, it's, it's a matter of chance. What brought the... The, all of us, including you, as well, to here today right, right. for this symposium. It's I'm it, absolutely. I'm doing. A, I'm thinking about a show about that, that fort taken that brought us, the six of us together, right. uh, you know, seven of us together to this symposium. It is fascinating. That's why I wanted to know where you all I will started. Say, yeah. I, I will say, I think, and I, I see if you agree with this. There's been a change in theater, a major change, uh, possibly starting with the British invasion. I don't know how long it's going to stay or whatever. But we, we had for a while these through-composed shows, which to me drove me crazy because I really didn't want people to start singing about, you know, I want some water, how is your daughter, how is the thing? You know, I mean, it's just like, it went on and on. Now, it's interesting, when you see a revival, when you see a revival, and you see what the old type show was, we're kind of out of that too. We've, we've, we've kind of grown past that, about the little book with the wonderful, great songs, one after the other. And yet, where, it, where the pendulum swung got a little bit too crazy, because when you talk about the book, I used to love going to shows, I mean, what I call the great shows, I mean, the ones, you know, like the My Fair Ladies, the uh, Fiddler on the Roofs, the, the, the West Side Story, where not only did you have these great melodies and lyrics, but there would be a scene, or, would there, or there'd be a sentence, or there'd be a moment, forgetting the music and lyrics, that you remembered, that you went, when that person said blah, 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 you know, you just went, whoa. And I think it's very important, for instance, when I'm writing now, uh, I like the idea that, yes, if I needed to take something from the book, if I said, this is going to be a great song, I've got to take it, you've got to have a, a, a book writer who says, it's okay, I, I can live with that. On the other hand, I'm one of the few writers who goes, I love this so much, I don't want to touch this. This is better spoken than it will ever be sung. Uh, I've always felt that some of these through-composed shows are through-composed because the books are not very good. And I have noticed in the theater that people don't cough during songs. People tend to cough during scenes. So if you keep singing the whole time, the chances are you eradicate, you know, the, but, but really, I mean this sincerely. And I got, I got upset, personally, because I would go to these shows and I'd say, this is not the real thing. This is, a, this is a hybrid, but this is not what really Broadway should be about. It should be the combination that should be thrilling. I you know? absolutely agree yeah. with you. And uh, the, the through-composed show, for the most part, also drives me crazy for a number of reasons, not the least of which is being an opera lover, it seems like such fake opera to mm. me. Exactly. And, and the, uh, sometimes I think a show is through-composed because the creators think it's, quote, artistic. Right. And the fact is, it's just writing. It's just typewriting. I agree with that. Although I have to say that uh, with the miking of singers and, and the orchestra, uh, that's why you don't hear the coughing during songs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. No, no. Just kidding. <laughs> I, have to I wanted to say one thing about Peter as a collaborator, uh, and that is when we work together, uh, usually at Fred's kitchen table, 
uh, and we're working on a scene, he will get us up to the point uh, where music is called for and be so generative in, in the discussion that by the time he leaves, Freddie and I are pretty clear about uh, what we are to do. Mm -hmm. One other person who uh, is a wonderful collaborator in a different way is Terence McNally, who will write a whole, f he'll write five pages knowing full well that we're going to take those five pages mm. and musicalize it. But uh, that's his way of, gen of generating us. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that's, uh, uh, it's important to do that. But I think there are things that a book writer has to learn as well if you're going to do this. One is that you've got one hour to tell two hours of story. Because the score, no matter what, is not supposed to tell the story. I mean, you'll find book songs that will do it, but mostly it's, it's, uh, it's emotional and it's, it's uh, involved relationships and so forth. But so you have to be very ec uh, economic. The other is, and this is something Lesser made very clear, and that is the lead-in to a song. Songs used to have, in many cases during the old days, their own lead-in called the called verse, which mm -hmm. changed the level of the speech from prose to poetry. You, you, the good verses brought you up to a poetic way of speaking. But you don't have verse as much uh, anymore, and so the book does that, and it always should have done it, and that is it has to bridge the gap, because when they start singing, they're very poetic, and when they've been talking just before, they're quite prosaic, and you have to present something in the middle that lifts you from, from the one element to the other. Sometimes it's a combination. <coughs> I think yeah. the most successful comedy song that I can remember that Johnny and I wrote uh, is The Grass is Always Greener from uh, Woman of the Year. Were it not for the four or five minute scene that precedes it and the solid, solid laughs you got for this character who was this uh, unforgettable uh, <laughs> drudge, sort of gnome-like <laughs> lady, uh, Marilyn Cooper, uh, this song couldn't have worked, nor could we have scored as heavily as we did without that libretto, without your words. And uh, I think that we have to be the continuation of the speech. I don't think it goes to poetry well, I, at I, all. I, I agree, but I think that you are into both rhythm and poetry, and it has to it has to somehow can't jar with it. That's all. I, that's really all I'm saying. They couldn't be more prosaic. That song, comedy numbers, it's true. Although that that went through an amazing genesis because we started auditioning women for that part. It was a different scene, and nobody was any good, including the woman we hired who won the Tony for it. <laughs> Everybody was was terrible. And I said, I'm I'm running out of my. You know, this is, nobody's doing this right. And the director said to me, Look. When they're all bad, it's not their fault. They're professionals. The scene's no good. Uh -huh. And I went back and redid the scene, and immediately they were playing it. You know, it's, it's, that's the sort of thing. One of the, I'm sorry. No, that's it. One of the things that, that happens when you get a chance to go out of town, which is harder and harder, or get a chance to work in front of an audience a long time before the critics come in, you, will f uh, you find that something, that song in the second act never really works. And so... For a long time, you attack the song, you, you rewrite it, and it still never works until it dawns on somebody that the never. reason that song in the second act doesn't work is because well. something didn't happen in the first act <laughs> to, prepare, uh, to, to prepare us for it. 
And just as and the perfect example, of course, though, is in that one scene, as Fred said. Well, you bring us around to the eleven o'clock number, which is how you you build to it, and that's your big song, "Rose's Turn" or whatever it is. That's that's the big number you come to. It's you call it eleven o'clock. It's really at ten thirty now because <laughs> the curtains used to go up at eight thirty. But that number is oh, you've all written them, and 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 you know what that is. That last song, as opposed to the first, and you're quite right. It, if it doesn't work. The tendency of producers says throw the song and get another song, but if you look at the clock and the eleven o'clock number comes and it's eleven thirty, that may be why it doesn't work. You, <laughs> cut, you know, it's too late. Cut your show and then see if it doesn't work. Then if it doesn't work, look at what comes before it. Maybe it's redundant. Maybe the scene has just done it, or maybe another song you have earlier did it, or as John says, maybe something in Act One should have prepared you for it. But before you throw out these these people are professionals, and when they write a song like that, you got to. Look at everything else before you dare remove that song for something else, because they—that's th you know—it's usually it's not the song's fault. It may be in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Should be about eight forty-five. <laughs> <laughs> eight forty-five. I, I, I found I have, I have found in, in in working on Tom Sawyer with with the great collaborators that I'm working with 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 Ken and with Scott Ellis and Paul Gimignani that uh, the person who's probably cut more songs than anybody else is me. Uh, I, I love what Cole Porter said. Song's not working. I'll write you another one. <laughs> you know, no problem. Uh, as opposed to sitting around and trying to rewrite the same song 20 times. If you have to do that, write another song because uh, it's well, not accomplishing what you it's doing. You mentioned Gemignani, and that's interesting because this is the musical director, the conductor, but the musical director, and I, he certainly has been there uh, <laughs> through it all. I mean, of all the people you're working with, and we've uh, all worked with Scott Ellis and are going to again. Uh, 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 Gemignani has seen every talk seen about yeah. talk about that talk about the people you work with that is to say the musical conductor the arranger the orchestrator the the, the you know and, and that sort of thing it's about Gemignani one thing when I when Mike Ocker and Susan Strowman first brought me into a rehearsal of Christmas Carol this uh, fellow was over playing drums and he walks over to me and whispers in my ear you just write the songs we'll do the rest <laughs> And has been with with me on Tom Sawyer all the way through, and uh, what an, what an angel! And and that is, it's, for me, uh, I guys, I'm probably the person here that, that the only person here that doesn't read music. I write a, a number system that is uh, that we we use in Nashville, but to have someone like Paul Gimignani uh, take and expand on just the songs that I wrote, and the book writer teach me how to, to go through the arc of the show. Uh, you know what I don't amazing. agree with about writing another one? Okay. I uh, wrote with John a song called Class <coughs> for Chicago. And I hated it. It scared the life out of me. And I didn't even want to see it. And when we did a, a back and sort of run through, I wouldn't play it, I wouldn't sing it, I didn't want to perform it. Johnny said, it's funny. Leave it in. No, I don't like it. Well, we opened with it. And now it's the opening night, and we're, where were we, Boston? Philadelphia, Philadelphia. And now up comes Cheetah Rivera and Mary McCartney, and class is going to start. I leave. <laughs> and I, I, I start leaving, going to the men's room, because it was down there. And I am worried down the stairs, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to hear it. And then you hear a little bit here. Maybe that's a laugh, I thought. 
Sorry, now I come up with <laughs> <laughs> Now I come now I heard a big one. <gasps> now I'm up. <laughs> and I'm in there and the number was terrific. And I thought a day before, a week before, a month before, I would have taken that out. I would have said, I'll write you another one. Because well, I would have. But you need other people's faith. Yeah, you well, especially yeah, with comedy. I, I would say, uh, you know, uh, arguably you're the best uh, comedy. You write the best comedy lyrics of anybody in the, in the, in the business. And, and uh, it's remarkable, the jokes. To get jokes in a song is really hard, harder than anything. And he comes up with great jokes. And, and, and uh, until you hear an audience react to it, you don't know. It's like the book. It's like the book. You write a joke. You don't know that it's funny. No. You think it's funny or you don't. Until an audience reacts. And then you know. And that's what happened in that case. It's, it's yeah, but you, know, you, you just uh, made me think about something. And usually when I say, okay, let's cut it. We'll write another one. Um, for some reason, nobody tends to disagree with me, so <laughs> I, I guess I get the collaborative approval. I once did a movie uh, down in Nashville, and I had to go down to Nashville to do to, to, for a movie on it, to record. I'll never forget it. I walk in with all this music and everything like that, with the band and everything like that. I give out the music, and they all go, <laughs> we don't read. I go, okay, <laughs> let's try it another way. <laughs> Shoot. And they got it right, didn't but, they? Oh, they always got yeah. it right. They always got it right. You did yellow and red. Right, exactly. So we set up the thing in the piano. I, I would just say one thing. I'd just like to add to what you said, because uh, particularly with comedy songs, obviously you need an audience. I, I think the thing that's gotten for me, the, the thing that I don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent was, you talked about Jerome Curran going out, doing four shows. This is before we had things like... Uh, trying them out now, workshops. You know, we have now these workshops, which on one hand are supposedly wonderful because they give the creator, which I think is good, a chance to try out their show, to look at it for a much less amount of money, right? To give it a try. But it's really not just that anymore. That's what it was supposed to be when, when it started out. Now it's really a chance for the producer to tell you if he likes your work in progress. And that's a whole different bag. And, you know, I mean, there is nobody out there who's going to get four shows a year or three shows or two because given that process, that's another thing that slows up the whole thing. I mean, you know, it really does. And then, of course, now with a finite amount of theaters and a lot of shows and a lot of revivals coming in and a lot of producers going to London and saying, well, those are the hits, so why should we worry about anything in America? Bring those over. It's a, I find it a much tougher time just to create what you want to create, you know? Uh, and it, it's in a way shameful because... For me, Broadway is supposed to be about taking a chance. It's not supposed to be about always bringing in something that you know was a hit somewhere, so therefore we can't lose. Um, to me, it was the roll of the dice. I don't think they knew that West Side Story was going to be West Side Story. They didn't know My Fair Lady. There was no workshop on My Fair Lady. It just, it was what it was. Well, the and, creative you know, producer that we used to yes. be, there used to be a lot of them, right. is practically non-existent. Exactly. Now. And you've got, as a matter of fact, your show started off with one of the last of the great ones, even though he's got a lot of troubles. But Garth Drabinsky was right. a, a, a man of enormous vision and dedication to the theater. You mm -hmm. didn't want to necessarily invest in his shows, but, uh, <laughs> but that kind of active creative producer is something you right. don't really well, I have. have a, uh, see, and I have a problem with that. I, I just couldn't work with Garth because Garth was so hands-on and made so many dicta that I found it very confining. Plus the fact that God believed exactly in focus group. Uh, 
which is what they do to motion pictures yeah, today. Right, which is not a good And bring thing. in an audience and wire them up and see what they're reacting to. This is the audience telling you what to write. No, and that's I not didn't good. like that. And I found these shows degenerated. You didn't have that, but they well. certainly did on Ragtime and they certainly did on some of the others. And you start up taking the spontaneity out of the show. But out of town, see, the good thing about Garth was he was already out of town. He right, was in right. Canada. Uh, going out of town is a process. Right. And it's not about going out of town, although it is. Getting out of New York is really important. But to go someplace, because musicals, I think, that are rewritten more than they're written almost. Yeah. You, until you put all of those elements together, you've never seen them together. Mm -hmm. Music, lyrics, sets, costumes, <coughs> lighting, uh, orchestra. Uh, all of that together, it surprises you. You've never seen it before. It's right. always yeah. surprising. You know, I, always just, surprising. Just on that real quick, and then, uh, is the fact that I think this is more true of musicals. You, you would know better because you've probably seen more of these. But when you go to see these workshops and you see a play, and then the play comes in, it's very much like what you saw. But why is it that these workshops, you hear this all the time, that you loved it in workshop. You, you saw this musical, you loved it. It was near you, it was this, it was intimate, it was that, the two pianos were great. Then all of a sudden it goes somewhere, all of a sudden an orchestra is, you know, they get the and 23... Scenery and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and the scenery and the scenery, you add all those things, and instead of them being a terrific plus, they all of a sudden turn out to be a minus I sometimes. But that used to happen all I mean, the time. I mean, uh, you know, but, but, I, but you hear it more about musicals than any, any other. The old gypsy run-throughs yeah. that we all yeah. used yes, to exactly. go to were the, were the same, the same exactly. thing. But I you, think it's because of what happened to you like in Boston. It's like radio. You right. imagine, when you go yes. to a workshop, you, you are seeing the sets and the costumes yeah. right. and the lighting right. and the orchestrations yeah. in your head. Right. And you like it, because right. you're doing your own right. job, yeah. you know? And then you come in and it's somebody else's, and you say, gee, I, I, you know, that's not the way I'd done it. For right. me, for being, for being new in, in, uh, in the world of theater, uh, I found that the, the uh, readings we've done, the workshops have been immeasurably helpful. Uh, I don't, without your uh, wealth of experience, uh, and uh, it, it is the first time that I've ever seen uh, the process work. And right. so for someone who's who uh, can uh, foresee what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. I, I can understand the 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 uh, not the need of it. You know, I'm also amazed that, that I'm in Nashville. People talk about Garth. I'm in New York. People talk about Garth. But they're talking about Garth. That's Brooks. a different Garth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knew there was more than one? <laughs> but I, uh, we're coming up on our break. I, I, I think uh, what you're saying is true. But we've forgotten to say the one thing about why these workshops were invented right. was to raise money. Right. Yeah. The producers yes. use them to raise their money. But now you were, we're coming the first up, ones. Right. We're coming up on our break now. We're going to take a short break, and pretty soon the whole point is to have these people fighting and throwing food and, and, and hitting each other with rolled up programs. So Perfect. that's what you got to look forward to. So thank you. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before returning to our panelists, I would like to emphasize to you that these seminars and the Tony Awards for Excellence in the Theatre are only a part of the activities of the American Theatre Wing. We may be best known for these activities, but the Wing is so much more as a not-for-profit charity that serves both theatre and the community with its year-round programs, 
the wing works to develop new audiences for the theater and bring theater to those who would otherwise not be exposed to its magic. Our meaningful programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its eight-year history has enabled more than 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to theater and to other worlds by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our Theater in School program. Additionally, the Wing's hospital program, dating back to World War II, when we created a legendary stage door canteen, continues to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities in the New York area. With volunteer talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world, the Wing continues to bring live entertainment to those who are not able to attend theater, and our grants and scholarship program provides essential support where it is so needed. We take pride in the work we do and remain so very grateful to our members and everyone who makes the work of the American Theatre Wing possible. Our work strengthens the ties between theatre and the community, and we are indeed proud to be a part of this great effort. And so now I would like to continue our program with Peter Stone moderating lyricists and composers. Peter, would you go on? Thank you. We were going to come back and everybody sit in a different seat and you wouldn't know who was who. But we, we, decided, we decided it this way and it would save the introductions all over again. Uh, we were talking about, let, let's for a second, it occurs to me suddenly, uh, to talk about for a second the first show and how you reacted to it and, and, and how you dealt uh, with that. Uh, was it in your case, was it... Uh, <clears throat> was it uh, uh, Flora, the well, Red Menace? The first one that Fred and I wrote together was Flora, the Red Menace. And uh, it, was a, it was directed by George Abbott, produced by Hal Prince. And we were sort of given the show, which was a huge, thrilling thing to happen to us. And, uh, and the show was not a success. At the same time, working with Mr. Abbott, I think we would both agree, was probably worth four years of drama school. He was just brilliant. Uh, and you met Liza. And we met Liza. With and a Z. With <laughs> Liza with a Z, yes. Uh, a lot of things began then. Uh, and I think, in spite of the fact that the show was not successful, Freddie and I probably learned more from that experience than anything that's happened to us since. And you had many with Hal, with Hal Prince, at least three more that I can think of, maybe more. Um, Hal was producing then, and, he, yeah. uh, and uh, he was just starting to direct. And he was, uh, and he was a big protege of, of Mr. Abbott as well. Right. And uh, your first was? Well, my first was working. Uh, and, right. Um, That's the show working. The show working, based on the Studs Terkel novel. And I got a phone call from Mary Rogers, whom I did not know, who, who had read Dick, my lyrics. Dick Rogers' daughter and an author, composer herself of, uh, of you know, Once Upon a Mattress. Mattress and so forth. So somewhere. Uh, she had read my lyrics somewhere, and um, she called, and I was feeding my kids. And she said, this is Mary Rogers. And... 
I've been asked to be one of the writers of a new show for Broadway, and, and I read your lyrics, and I was wondering, and I said, yes. <laughs> she said, don't you want to know what it is? I said, no, it's okay. Um, it, was a, it was a very strange experience, because there were five writers, and it was full of Sturm und Drang. Um, and Mary and I wrote many, many songs for it. We wrote songs for a family. There was a, a sort of storyline that held it together at first, uh, the storyline disappeared, and there were many sorts of internal storms, and all of the writers were kept in separate corners. But I was so thrilled to be there in the first place that I, I just loved every minute of it, even the terrible moments. That show continues to be done quite a bit. Yes. It's, it's one of those things that, uh, that uh, you see popping up in stock and, and amateur and uh, yeah. all over the place. I know it's done a lot. Had you done a show before, John? <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a flop. A big <laughs> flop. <coughs> I did an off-Broadway, uh, I don't know, what was it? It was like an opera. Not really. It was terrible. And, uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. We just met somebody in the hall. I mean, he's 45 if he's an hour. And he says, when he was a boy, <laughs> he saw Flora the Red Man. <laughs> that's a, I know, that's and not good, no. <laughs> John, you had a show before, uh, Family Affair, what was that? It was called The Family, Family. Affair yes, with, uh, Jim with, the and, with Jim and Bill Goldman. Uh, one of the things I, I wanted to uh, remember about Flora the Red Menace, that's uh, something that I think would never be able to happen in today's theatrical economy, is that uh, a week or two before Flora opened, Hal Prince, who was the producer, came to us and said, whatever happens with Flora, the day after it opens, we'll meet at my house and we'll talk about the next show. Mm. And that next show was Cabaret. I'm a Cabaret. Wow. Well, yeah. it wasn't called Cabaret at that time, but it turned out to be Cabaret. Right. And, uh, I'm a Cabaret was the play on which it was based. The issue but would... I cannot tell you the unique good fortune of that. And... Uh, when I say unique, I just can't imagine it happening in today's theater. You're right. You'd have to, a producer would be waiting a long time to see if these guys are bankable or... Mm -hmm. And Hal took a real chance on us. Was Chorus Line the first show? Chorus Line was the first show, and it came about because uh, I had worked with Michael Bennett, actually, as a rehearsal pianist, and, you know, doing dance music and stuff like that. And so there I am out in California doing what I do, and... Uh, what happened was very interesting because now I had an agent in California and I was actually winning awards and stuff. And you can imagine, I get this phone call from Michael who basically just says to me on the phone, I have an idea for a musical and I want you to come to New York and discuss this with me. He didn't tell me what it was or anything like that, just, you know, come. So, theater is my life, so I immediately call my agent and say, by the way, now that we've won all these awards and stuff, I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, this is goodbye. <laughs> My agent couldn't believe it, because now I was actually getting good offers for movies, and I was saying, no, no, this is it, I'm going to New York. So I came to New York City, and I uh, didn't even have, have an apartment. I actually went back to my parents' house to live for a couple of weeks while I was working this out with Michael. And I'll never forget, he, he, he brought me into his home, which, his apartment, which at that time was near City Center. I don't know if you've ever visited him, but it was... Yes, was, all black And walls. all black. All black walls, except where he lit up 
particularly the Tonys. So the Tony Awards were lit up. <laughs> Isabel, this is perfect for you. It would have been a perfect oh, ad wonderful. for you. Just that's all you could see. Day. It would make your day. God forbid if you wanted uh, something to eat there, you wouldn't know where to go because you'd be going over Tonys. You know? And he said to me, very quietly, because Michael could be very mysterious. So he said to me, I've got this idea. I've been talking to chorus people, this, that, and I want to do a show about them. And now you're waiting for like the middle and the end. You say, and, and then what? That's it. That's it. You know, that's it. So I go, I leave him at his 55th Street in, in the west side. I'm going, going up to my parents' house, which is on the west side. And I'm walking, I'm thinking, what, what meeting have I just, what have I just done? <laughs> I have just given up, you know, L.A. for what? And I'll never forget my Jewish mother. Now, this is for sure my Jewish mother, because I remember, okay. <laughs> I walk in, and my, and my Jewish mother says, so, Marvin, because she knew how much I revered Michael. I just thought he was one of the greatest directors and choreographers, and I just, we'd, we'd worked together, and I really loved him. He says, so, so tell me, what did Michael say? I said, well, I said, he just said there's these dancers, and they're going to talk about them, and we're going to do a thing about them. And there was a moment pause, and she says, do you want tomato with the tuna fish sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> I'm but I'm done. And uh, when you mentioned before, it was the first show really that did uh, workshops. I mean, we, because to find that show, you see, I think what sometimes happens, the only thing that I would say, I mean, I haven't been asked for any advice, but I would say, the only thing that I feel strongly about in, in these collaborations are two things. Number one, I think collaborations should be, they should feel good. You should like the person you're writing with. I mean, I've always read about how certain people never got to, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan, life's too short, in my opinion. I think it's important, and I do think it shows in the work. I've worked with people that I really didn't, really didn't love as much, and then I've met and worked with people that I really had a good time with. I think that's important. And the second thing that I think was very important, and this took me a while on Course Line, if you asked me on day one when I wa walked in on Chorus Line, which was a show in the making, we didn't have the 14 songs when we went in. We, we had three songs and we started. But if you asked me where I was on it, I wasn't anywhere as far ahead as Michael was, his vision. And eventually what has to happen in a really good collaboration is the three or four people that are working on it have to all decide that it's this road we're going down and this is where we're all going to end. Because what I think happens to a lot of shows is the music and lyric people think it's one thing. I do not agree. Right. Yeah. The choreographer right. thinks it's something else. Right. The, 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 you know, the, the, that's why the director today, it's the director's medium. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, if you're lucky and get a great director, or it's not even a question of a great director, a great director for that project, you know, who mm -hmm. sees it, like, and we're all seeing it. The thing about Chorus Line was slowly but surely, Michael was able for me to see it as he saw it, if you know what I'm saying. I, I didn't see I mean, I have to be honest with you. I started writing and going, I don't know where this is, but on blind faith, I think Michael is a genius. I'm going. Slowly but surely, as you started to, you know, realize what this was, we all got into it. And there was a wonderful kinetic energy to that. Uh, but, but that, to me, is the most important thing. It's you, the, the collaborators have to decide that they're doing the same show, whether it's a hit or it's a bomb. I mean, you yeah. know, that, that's just... Lesser, Lesser had a word for it, as he always did. He called it level. You all have to be working on the same level. And now it's hard to define the word, what level. But I've done shows where all of us, I, I did, we're on a different level, and the show uh, can't work that way. And yet you do shows where you're all writing the same show, uh, with 1776, you heard that first chorus of Sit Down, John, and somehow everybody knew the level they were going to be yes. working on, because without right. that, 
But I do agree you have to like each other. Although John and Fred can't stand David one another. I know. Well. That's why we separated. <laughs> and they seem to get along. I want to anyway. say something. I have always, and, and Fred knows this because I have the you know, great esteem. We've worked together on things together. But I will tell you, I've always felt uh, to a degree that there's something wonderful about having a partner for life. I think that is yeah. something I wish I had had. You know what I mean? Because it, it is the marriage. It is a marriage. It's a collaboration. And when you have a good one, like they have a great one, that, that makes it so much easier. Because sometimes you start working with someone, a new lyricist that you, comes into your life, and you realize after a while, this marriage isn't making it. You know, yeah. and it's just not happening. So I think to, it's, you're both in a very enviable position. Yeah, but you to, found, you know, I think, a very good combination. I'm, I'm, I think Craig yeah. is I'm, I'm very happy now, but I just want to tell you, it, it takes a long time sometimes. And you, know? and, and you have the uh, advantage of liking yourself. <laughs> so, <now. laughs> sometimes I let myself down. And, <laughs> but I never go to bed mad. There you go. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I assume you want me to respond about my experience the first show, and since I'm sure this will be taped and watched uh, for years and years. Uh, uh, this is your first show. Well, let's just say Tom Sawyer, which opened in April of 2001, was a terrific experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> Led to a wonderful career in the theater. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget it. And it's a hit in spite of Ben Brantley. Is that <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's funny, one of the things that <laughs> schools teach uh, uh, now have teach about musical theater and they, t they have classes in lyric writing and playwriting and, and composing, but the most important thing, and then Marvin brought it up, is that word collaboration. Yeah. And I don't, know, I don't know if you can teach it, but there certainly is never enough stress on that in uh, the academic world of musical theater. And collaboration is everything, absolutely everything. It's, it can't be taught because it's a matter of personal chemistry and it has yeah, to do exactly. you know and it just is one of those it's it kind of hit or miss until you find the right marriage because that's really what it is now you've worked with a number has there any uh, I, I have had the happiest collaboration there was only one that was unhappy who yeah we want to know <laughs> <laughs> hey this is Kate you're allowed to say anything <laughs> <laughs> and undress <laughs> But, but all the rest of them, you know, were and have been and have remained my best friends. Who's the I mean, man I, one? <laughs> when we, uh, we have to go back and look yeah. it up. I've had both. I've had wonderful ones. John and Fred were, were, were a dream to work with and for a book writer. Uh, and, um, but uh, I've had b bad ones where we just couldn't get along, you know. Uh, How does that work? I mean, we've been very lucky in not having that. What is a... Tell, tell about a bad collaboration. Uh, well, I, uh, one of my problems, well, go ahead, tell yours, I tell you a story in the, in the you blank. You don't have to name yes, it. Tell, in the it in the, tell it in the, you know, it, with a, like was, a blank key. Yes, it was one of those things, I mean, nowadays it seems that, that one is put into a collaboration by producers. And um, I wasn't wild about this notion to begin with, but I said, all right, I'll go along with it because I did like the other elements in the collaboration. I liked the book writer and the director, both of whom I met and had lunch with, and I loved them. And, and I liked the project. And I was the first one to discover that this person was really not a collaborator. A man or a woman? I know who it is, and I'll tell you. What was the experience? Well, the first time I was 
I was sort of trying to gentle him into it because him, 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 him. 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 So clever that that's her way of throwing us off. That's how clever. That's how clever this woman is. Uh, I only ever worked with one woman, and I got along with her. Um, that's Lucy. But yeah, she was fine. But, but he didn't uh, marry, right? And I love Mary. Um, but he didn't. The first time he was asked to do something by everybody in the room, the first time we all agreed that this moment was going to be musicalized and how it was going to be musicalized, he just said no. And then everybody explained to him why, and then we started to work again. And his way of dealing with not getting his own way was to, it's hard to describe, he would just sort of go limp and not do anything. And you know, when the producer said to me, I don't understand it, you get along with everybody, and yeah, why are you not getting along with him? And um, I said, well, I tried to explain it, and, and then, of course, the director ran into the same thing, and the other people did, and it became... And they murdered him. And that yeah. <laughs> no, they, they brought him The point is absolutely about what I've learned so far about collaboration that Ken Ludwig was teaching me for so long, is that uh, everyone will have input. Yeah. And even if you can see right uh, from the moment you first hear it that it's not what you want to do, not your work, you say, that's very interesting, I'll think about it. Yes. And that actually, as flip as it may sound, that does give you time to say, wait a minute, you know, and to, and to give you at least that much of thought. Uh, it, the, if you can avoid using uh, absolute terms, uh, no, that won't work. Um, that's wrong, oh, or yeah. whatever, or, <laughs> or, even that, <laughs> or naming even that names. You can deal with, <laughs> yeah. but when you everybody know. says, "But you have, you know, but we're all trying to do this, and yeah. you're kind of going over here. Can you make the adjustment, and we'll come this far?" Yeah. Sure. And he just said, "No, that's the way it is." You know, sometimes I have to say that I don't know about the two of you, but sometimes for me, we're writing a score, let's say, and I write a song, and I think it's wonderful, and then as you go past that moment and as you learn more about these characters and as you're working more you go back and all of a sudden right. you say you know what you know that song that was great in July <laughs> well now in October I want to change that or or sometimes I have to find myself where if if particularly the lyricist or the, the book writer or the director says to me I want you to do this I want it to be this way and let's say I don't see it I just don't see it I may still write it because it may get us to some place else where That's we right. all want to go that happens more times than you want to think about. I mean, I always find that for if you're writing 15 songs for a show, the chances are, even if you're writing at a terrific clip, uh, five or six are going to find themselves out, and another five or six are going to, you know, or because you, you can't, at least I, I don't think that I know these people in, in the show and what I'm doing as we start in the beginning. And also, I like to write, I must say, you know, uh, from from the beginning to the end of the show. I don't like to all of a sudden go the 11 o'clock moment. I like to know, where did I start, uh -huh. you know? And as these people are progressing in my head, they're also progressing on the paper. I mean, they're, they're coming alive to me. And uh, sometimes, many times usually, there'll be stuff and I'll just go, well, just leave that. You know, let's, let's just hold the page there. Let's keep going. But I'm coming back to that because right. I'm going to find something new. I mean, that, that happens. Uh, or, or the other, other, only other case I ever had that was wild for me was when Michael Bennett on Chorus Line, when I had a song that I really loved, and he said, I can't stage this. And I said to him, well, if you can't stage it, that, you know, like you said before, then right. it must be the, you know, right. it must be the scene or something. 
Then I had to, I had to change the number because I said, Michael, if you can't stage this, who can? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, and that sometimes happens. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of, you know. Well, you know, what, yeah. when we were doing the night they raided Minsky's, uh, we did a reading of the first script. And it was eminently successful. And we all went back and looked at each other and said, you know what? The character of the girl does not work. And we had to reinvent the character of the girl, the book writer, mm. which meant we had to change the story, which meant that Charles Strauss and I had to go back and rewrite right. almost 90% of the score. Oh, was he the one? <laughs> no, I didn't hear me. There's another aspect. There's also another aspect of book writing. <laughs> it was me. No, it wasn't. There's another aspect of, uh, of this collaboration, which is closer to the marriage part that I keep talking about, and that is the reaction that the collaborator has when the other collaborator brings in material. Oh, right, sure. And let's say you brings in a song, you sit there, you're underwhelmed by it. <laughs> you know, but it's like your wife brought home a new hat, you know, uh, you, you hate, you know, say, take that thing off and throw it away at the peril of your life. So, so it's the same way. You say, well, you know, there was, I think, you can do better. You know, I like right. it. Yes, right. it's yeah, good. Peter, Peter's much better than, than he's describing because if, if he's not reacting well to a piece of material, it, it won't be about, that is really a crappy song. <laughs> yeah, it, it's much more about, I think that the, the moment needs something, some other element to, to fulfill itself so that by the time you finish talking to him, you feel anyhow that you know what you ought to be doing. Mm. There's a wonderful Kaufman Hart piece called You Can't Take It With You. No. Well, that is one. No, Once in a Life. Once in a Life. Yeah. It takes place in Hollywood, right, and right. one of the characters is a, a writer, and he has a lot of uh, uh, crossover. And at one point, he's boy, and somebody says to him, why are you so successful? And he says, because I do the rewrites first. <laughs> I always remember that. And it's kind of true. One of the things that Fred and I have in our collaboration, uh, and this has always been true, and we've been very lucky. If we are working on a musical moment and we have a disagreement about what what direction it should go, if one of us has a real passion for a particular direction, the other one will say, "Well, okay, let's try it," and and we do. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. And we're lucky because we write fast, but we throw away fast too. But we will always. We will each of us go with the other's passion if there's a true passion for uh, like class. Yeah. And then there's a, yeah. then it there's was his passion, not mine. <laughs> and and then there's the getting a lot the producer who has opinions and you have to do it. The, the the most remarkable occasion I know is it, it happened to be a film, but it was dealing with Frank Lesser again. I keep quoting him, but somehow he's and he was doing Hans Christian Andersen. And he came in and played a new song for Sam Goldwyn, and Goldwyn says, well, that's very nice, Mr. Lesser, but I, I think you can do better. And <laughs> Frank went home and wrote a whole new song, brought it in, and he said, well, yes, that's, that's also nice, but I still think you can do better. <laughs> and so Frank went home, and he wrote a new song, he came in again, and Lesser said, yeah, that's also good, but I, I still think, he says, no, Mr. Goldwyn, that's the best I can do. And he says, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, he didn't know anything. But if, but, if, but if the composer says, all right, I can do better, but it gets to a point where he says, that's it. That's as good as I can do. You I know, the, 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 that's like a list of useless comments from producers, yeah. sometimes from directors, too, who will say, 
I don't think you're stretching yourself. Yes, right, right, right. I know. That I don't think you're challenging that, that yourself. That calls for some violence. <laughs> <laughs> My terrible collaboration, which was only due to the fact that there was a status difference, which was played upon, was a, I was young and it was a very, very famous, famous composer. Who? Uh, Richard, <laughs> I won't tell Richard you his name. I won't tell you his name. I'll give you his initials. All right, <laughs> Richard Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also he was also the producer of the show. Ooh. And he was always wearing the wrong hat on purpose. You'd go to him and you'd say, Richard, I think we, you know, Dick, I think we ought to do this. He said, Well, I'm talk talk to you know talk to your glass. I'm the producer. And then you go in and talk about something about the producer. He says, Well, I'm just the composer. You know, and and it was <laughs> you didn't have even footing. Now, he was a perfectly nice man, I suppose, but the fact was that, that the difference in our status was so different. Uh, it, it, it was, he was a legend, you know, and I was, uh, what we say on cable, if you could, a pisher. And, 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 there, was, and there, was, there was no way that, you know, it just wasn't good because he didn't make it comfortable for me. It was his job to make it comfortable for me, and he couldn't. So it was a bad collaboration. But all the others, and I've had a lot, uh, have all been really quite good, although not, not, no one as good as these two. Uh, it's really amazing to work with them. You never fight. You have arguments. You have lunch a lot. But, but, but you, and you have great <laughs> breakfasts. <laughs> anyway, that's great. For my sake, could you just tell me how New York, New York came about? A movie? It, it's really, it's, it's my national anthem. Well, New oh. York, New York came about, I'll do this really quickly. There was a <coughs> movie called New York, New York, and we were asked to write some songs for it. And it starred Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. And we wrote a song called New York, New York, which we thought was perfectly fine. And uh, we came in and we played it for Scorsese, who was directing it, and Liza and De Niro. And we got past Liza and, uh, and Scorsese just fine. And before we left, we saw De Niro over in a corner, sitting on a couch with Scorsese, gesturing a lot. <laughs> and the long and short of it is that he, uh, Scorsese came back with great apology and said that uh, De Niro had not liked it for a number of reasons. And we, of course, were really pissed off. Like, uh, what does some actor, uh, what is some actor doing telling us how to write a song? So anyhow, basically, we said we'd take another shot at it. And we went back and, in very short order, uh, wrote a song, another song called New York, New York, which is the song which we know today. And if it had not been for <laughs> De Niro uh, being a real pain in the ass, uh, we would have never. And if you think it's a pain in the ass, you think what it is to Betty and Adolf. All right, well, anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've come to the end. <laughs> they wrote the oh, first oh, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. A hell of a town. We've come to the end of our, of our hell of a broadcast. Uh, we really love your being here. These people are, these are all legends and one soon to be. Uh, yeah, on Broadway, and as always, Isabel, thanks for the opportunity. Oh, thank uh, you. And, uh, and I'm going to interrupt by saying, in all the years we've been doing these seminars, this is the most interesting and informative one that we have done. Oh, okay. <laughs>
Thank you. 